48K News. It's 11 o'clock. I'm Steve Dunthorne. Tonight's headlines. Cathay Pacific gets a government bailout. Carrie Lam condemns plans for a strike as part of opposition to national security laws. And the deaths of two youngsters raise concerns about pupils readjusting to school life. Cathay Pacific is getting a $39 billion lifeline to help it survive the coronavirus pandemic. As part of its recapitalization plan, Cathay will issue shares to the Hong Kong government and raise money from shareholders in a rights issue. The administration will take a 6% stake in the struggling carrier, but says it has no plans to become a long-term shareholder or be involved with the running of the airline. And for now, there won't be any layoffs. But Cathay's chairman, Patrick Healy, says that cannot be ruled out on the way forward. We can't take anything off the table is unfortunately the, the honest answer to that question. Management will be coming to the board of Cathay Pacific in the fourth quarter of this year with their view of what the future holds. And we'll be making recommendations at that point to the board. Uh, so until that time, we have no plans for any restructuring other than the recapitalization that we've, we've announced today. Uh, but beyond that, the reality is that we can't take anything off the table. Amber Suen, the vice chairperson of the airline's flight attendants union, says she hopes Cathay will promise to keep all existing staff. I would say it provides, to a certain extent, some kind of reassurance and also some hope because at least we know that there is some help to have the company to get through this. But then we would say we're disappointed, reluctant to promise not implement redundancy, given the fact that they already have help and at the same time they're actually planning to extend or to introduce a new uh, unpay leave scheme. Independent aviation analyst Will Horton says Cathay needs to continue its revamp following the bailout. It's going to preserve the status quo. It's going to be interesting if, with this government support, are there nudges to grow, to have a few more flights than necessary, retain more staff than necessary, certainly right after the Singaporean government uh, invested or took part in the Singapore Airlines right issue. There's a very large focus that Singapore Airlines still needs to grow, and in fact, it needs to use this time to its advantage to take an even larger role in aviation. So as CAFE does have this cash secured for the coming months and years, it's no excuse not to be a little bit conservative and think they can grow a little more than necessary. But actually, they do really still need to transform and make changes beyond what they started doing in the last two years. To other news, the chief executive has hit out at plans to hold a referendum on a general strike and class boycott as part of opposition to proposed national security laws. Carrie Lam insists Hong Kong can ill afford to have a strike at this point and that such a referendum has no legal basis. Amidst the difficulties that Hong Kong is facing, I do not believe that Hong Kong people welcome that sort of strike action when their greatest worry, or the greatest worry of many people, is losing their job and facing difficulties in their daily living. The deaths of two schoolchildren in recent days who fell from buildings have raised fresh concerns about youngsters readjusting to school life following months of closure. University of Hong Kong social work professor Paul Yip says some pupils are worried about falling behind in their studies and their family members losing their jobs because of the bad economy. He says schools can play a role in reducing their stress. 
terms of the school, as far as I understand, I think the tests and the examination, I think that will happen, I think, after they resume the school. So I think it might not be a bad idea. I think if we can postpone, I think, this assessment for a bit longer, I mean, just to ensure that I think the student, I think when they resume the classes, I think we pay more attention to their mental well-being and then to understand the stress. The government says about 2,500 cross-builder pupils who live on the mainland but go to school here will be exempt from quarantine starting next week so they can resume their studies. But the exemptions only apply to pupils in forms 3 to 5. They will also have to prove that they've tested negative for the coronavirus and fill in a health declaration form. The government says special arrangements will be put in place at the Shenzhen Bay and Fujian control points to accommodate the pupils. The authorities will also arrange subsidised school buses for them. You're tuned to RTHK. The time is coming up to five minutes past 11. At least four activists say they now each face a rioting charge instead of a lesser charge of entering LegCo over protests at the legislature on July the 1st last year. Actor Gregory Wong, localist Ventus Lau, former University of Hong Kong student leader Althea Suen, and Brian Leung, a protester who removed his mask while reading out a statement in the LegCo chamber that night, wrote on social media that they have been informed by lawyers about the change. They're due to appear in court tomorrow. The charge they originally faced carries a maximum penalty of three months in jail. The maximum penalty for rioting is ten years behind bars. Several people were subdued by the police during a demonstration marking the one-year anniversary of the first major protest march against the now withdrawn extradition bill. People had gathered at Chater Garden, where police warned them against taking part in an illegal assembly, before some began marching towards Central and blocking roads. Police responded by using pepper spray against them. One of the protesters at Chater Garden, Jeremy, says he was one of an estimated one million marchers a year ago. Our government didn't do anything regarding our demands, but actually the, the noise and awareness across the international have been increased. And I think that's a good thing. The pro-democracy camp is planning to hold primaries for the LegCo polls next month in a bid to push for a majority in the legislature in September's election. The primaries will cover the five geographical constituencies, the so-called district council super seats and the health services sector. Here's Damon Pang. The camp is trying to come up with a list of candidates to run in the LegCo polls as they set their sights on winning 35 or more seats. Pro-democracy figures worry it would be the last meaningful Legislative Council election because of the looming national security law. Occupy Central founder and an organiser of the primary, Benny Tai, says the law may be used to disqualify hopefuls. Still, they hope the exercise will give Hong Kongers a chance to show their determination for democracy. It's exactly because we do not know the content of the national security law yet. If the law is to be passed in late June, it may authorize the authority to disqualify the candidates from the Democratic camp on any grounds. Professor Tai says backup candidates will be named by the teams in case the primary winners are disqualified. He said eligible voters will be asked to take part on the 11th and 12th of next month via the smartphones or paper ballots at hundreds of polling stations to be set up across Hong Kong. The results will be out on the 13th. The chief executive, all politically appointed officials and non-official ex-co members will have their pay frozen for a year in light of the economic slowdown. 
Richard Pine with that story. Carrie Lam said the salaries of political appointees are adjusted automatically on July the 1st every year, in accordance with a formula that takes into account factors such as inflation. So far, she said it looks like that would go up by about 2%, but she said everyone in her cabinet has agreed to freeze their pay for a year to show solidarity with the people. She said Exco non-official members have their salaries adjusted annually on October the 1st, and they too have agreed to have a pay freeze this year. The government earlier announced a one-year pay freeze for all civil servants. Mrs. Lam added there are no plans to lay off anyone within the civil service, and there will not be any voluntary retirement scheme, with many government employees reaching retirement age. As for the relief fund set aside for employers and self-employed people facing financial difficulties amid the coronavirus outbreak, Mrs. Lam said applicants will start getting their money this week. She added assistance will be provided to casual construction workers, staff in several trades, such as employment referral, as well as graduates looking for jobs. Overseas, some say it is Pyongyang's frustration over a lack of progress in nuclear talks with the United States. They're referring to a move by North Korea to cut all official communication lines with South Korea, including the hotline between the two countries' leaders. The BBC's Laura Bicker reports. Pyongyang appears to be angry at anti-regime leaflets being flown over the DMZ in balloons by North Korean defectors in the South. These leafleting campaigns often make fun of leader Kim Jong-un and have long been a source of contention between the two sides. This announcement claims that all communication ties will be cut, including the presidential hotline between Kim Jong-un and Moon Jae-in. These phone lines were hard won in historic summits and negotiations between the two leaders in 2018. Two years on, and it seems North Korea may be once again escalating tensions. Nearly 270 Muslim Rohingyas who fled by boat from southern Bangladesh have been taken into custody in Malaysia. The whereabouts of around 200 other passengers believed to have been on board the overcrowded vessel are not known. The BBC's Jonathan Head reports. A gruelling two-month ordeal ended for the Rohingya boat people as their crippled trawler was approached by a Malaysian Coast Guard vessel. Dozens jumped into the sea and tried to swim to land. They and those on board were intercepted by the Coast Guard and their boat was towed to Langkawi Island. For weeks they'd been stuck offshore, unable to find a way to land because of the strict lockdown imposed in Malaysia to deal with COVID-19. In previous years, smugglers have been able to bring tens of thousands of Rohingyas illegally into the country. The Supreme Court in India has given the authorities a deadline of 15 days to transport home hundreds of thousands of migrant workers stranded due to the coronavirus lockdown. Millions lost their jobs when tight restrictions were imposed with only hours' notice in late March. Here's the BBC's Anbaras Natarajan. With no other option, they thought going back home would be the safer option. And many people got stranded because the government did not allow them to travel at that time. Then there was no transport. They were put up in different camps. Many migrant workers died because of illness, exhaustion, and many road traffic accidents. Now, the Supreme Court is telling the authorities, you know, finish this process in the next couple of weeks so that these people can be allowed to go back to their homes. The government says that it has already transported more than 10 million workers to their respective places. But still, there are many people stranded in different parts of the country. In New Zealand, life today returned almost to how things were before the coronavirus struck. Though its borders remain closed, here's the Prime Minister, Jacinda Ardern. We are confident we have eliminated transmission of the virus in New Zealand for now. 
But elimination is not a point in time. It is a sustained effort. We almost certainly will see cases here again. And that is not a sign that we have failed. It is a reality of this virus. Iran says it has sentenced a man to death for helping the United States and Israel target a top commander, Qasim Soleimani, who was killed by an American drone strike in January. The BBC's Jonathan Marcus has more. A spokesman for the Iranian judiciary said that the accused, Mahmoud Mousavi Maj, was convicted of spying on Iran's armed forces and collecting information on the movement and location of General Qasem Soleimani. The spokesman said that the verdict had been upheld by the Supreme Court and the execution would be carried out soon. General Soleimani was a powerful and charismatic figure who to a large extent operated in plain sight, never imagining that he would be the target of a U.S. attack. His death led to a significant escalation in tensions between Tehran and Washington, which prior to the COVID-19 pandemic almost brought them to the brink of war. To sport now, and in soccer, Brazil has withdrawn its bed to host the Women's World Cup in 2023. The Brazilian Football Confederation said it cannot offer FIFA the financial assurances it needs because of COVID-19's impact on the country's economy. Instead, it will support Colombia's bid to become the first South American country to host a Women's World Cup. Japan and a joint Australia-New Zealand bid are also in contention. A decision is expected on June the 25th. Brazil is the country hardest hit by COVID-19 in Latin America. Manchester City's appeal to the Court of Arbitration for Sport against their two-year ban from European club competition is underway. The English Premier League side was also fined 34 million US dollars by European football's governing body after it ruled that the club had committed serious breaches of UEFA's financial fair play regulations. The BBC's Dan Rowan has been looking at the potential consequences for City if they lose their appeal. While the coach Pep Guardiola vowed to see out his contract, an upheld two-year ban could see some of the club's best players leave. It could make it harder to attract new ones and leave potentially a £200 million hole in the club's finances. Golf now, the LPGA Tour has lost its first major because of COVID-19. The Evian Championship in France has been cancelled this year. The LPGA Tour cited ongoing travel and border restrictions, along with government quarantine requirements, for not holding the tournament in early August. The tour is set to resume in the American state of Ohio with the Marathon Classic on July the 23rd. A reminder of our top stories tonight. Cathay Pacific gets the government bailout. Carrie Lam condemns, pl condemns plans for a strike as part of opposition to national security laws. And the deaths of two youngsters raise concern about pupils readjusting to school life. The news from RTHK. It's time now to look at stories covered in this evening's Newswrap programme. Cathay Pacific is getting a government bailout to help it survive the coronavirus pandemic. Jim Gould spoke to independent aviation analyst Will Horton about the airline's prospects and the development of the aviation sector. I think it's definitely enough to get it through this period, and certainly once they get this government loan, there's going to be a little more reception to some of the private markets. They still maybe have some aircraft they can look to trade against as well. 
But the, the focus really right now for, for any company, aviation or another industry, is just getting through these difficult few months to a year. I mean, the Hong Kong government is essentially bailing out Cathay Pacific. We know these are extraordinary times, but uh, this does seem to go against its uh, free market hands-off principles. I think there are a lot of arguments right now that uh, every playbook no longer exists. Certainly in the U.S. you see a very conservative, small government. But what's going on there are some direct grants that don't need to be repaid, whereas the government's investments, the shares it's taking, those do need to be repaid. So what does this mean for travellers like us, and, and what does it mean for competition in the industry? I think actually this uh, is, is going to preserve the status quo. What's going to be interesting if, with this government support, are there nudges to grow, to have a few more flights than necessary, retain more staff than necessary? Certainly right after the Singaporean government uh, invested or took part in the Singapore Airlines right issue. There's a very large focus that Singapore Airlines still needs to grow, and in fact, it needs to use this time to its advantage to take an even larger role in aviation. Now, the Cathay chairman, Patrick Healy, he's predicting a bright future in the longer term, saying the airline will have an unrivaled position in the greater Bay Area. Uh, is he right to be so optimistic? absolutely a bright future for Cathay, but there's also a lot of competition in this region, in Guangzhou, in, in Shenzhen, and of course other hubs throughout Asia. Um, Cathay has hinted it may have to downsize to compete successfully in the future. What sort of restructuring could we expect, and would it indeed need to uh, lay off some of the staff? Well, throughout the uh, North America and Europe, you are seeing sort of about 20% cuts in, in fleet, driven partially by expected lower demand in, in coming years, but also a very large focus on building back the balance sheet and paying off debt quite quickly. So you may not see 20% cuts across Asia, but you may see 10% you know, cuts driven by removing the older aircraft that may have been phased out uh, in a few years and also postponing some growth. So what do you think is the uh, outlook for the Hong Kong aviation sector um, emerging from uh, COVID-19? Well, I think uh, it's going to depend on what's happening across rivals. Certainly every other hub had seen investment except from Hong Kong investing into CAFE. But now sort of who's actually going to get the most investment? And, and in some ways, if you get the most investment, does that potentially make you a little too confident and not willing to make the deep cut? So as CAFE does have this cash secured for the coming months and years, it's no excuse not to be a little bit conservative and think they can grow a little more than necessary. But actually, they do really still need to transform and make changes beyond what they started doing in the last two years. For the second time in a week, the carcass of a Chinese white dolphin calf has been found in Hong Kong waters. Conservation groups say more needs to be done to make sure the species' dwindling numbers are protected and able to thrive. Richard Pine reports. The carcass of the baby female was found in the water off Lama Island on Monday. It measured just over a meter long and has been taken to the Ocean Park Conservation Foundation so a necropsy can be carried out. The foundation says there was no obvious injuries on the dolphin. It's the fourth report of a dead Chinese white dolphin that the foundation has received this year. Just a few days earlier, the body of a male calf was discovered in Tun Mun. The foundation says it had an obvious injury to its left side and a necropsy will also be carried out to determine the cause of death. Lawrence McCook, WWF Hong Kong's head of oceans conservation, says Chinese white dolphins face a number of interconnected threats, from habitat loss to pollution to marine traffic, but the deaths are tragic because these threats are well documented and can be prevented. These deaths are just too common. There's been an 80% drop 
in the abundance of dolphins in Hong Kong waters over the last 15 years. We know what the threats are, things like coastal development, overfishing, unsustainable fishing, underwater noise, and so on. And we know what we can do about those. The conservation group and collaborators put together an emergency action plan for dolphins in the Pearl River Delta, which it hopes the public and authorities will get behind so the species can be protected. Vincent Ho from the Hong Kong Dolphin Conservation Society pointed out that there had not been a significant increase in the number of carcasses found in local waters, and the ones recently discovered may have drifted here from the mainland. Nonetheless, he says there are fewer calf sightings in local waters, which shows just how difficult it will be for local populations to bounce back. Since the mortality rate of the young calf is very high, and also the fecundity of the female is very low, that's why even there are no more construction work carried out. It's very difficult for the whole population to bounce back to normal level, like about 200 individuals in 20 years ago. There are an estimated 2,000 Chinese white dolphins in the Pearl River Delta, while the number in Hong Kong has fallen by 80% in the past 15 years. Russia is slowly beginning to open up again, even though the country's number of COVID-19 cases is still rising. Moscow's mayor has announced that the capital will end its self-isolation orders, including its digital pass system and schedule system for taking walks outside. The city also released a schedule of which restrictions will be lifted over the next few weeks. Anna-Marie Evans asked RTHK's Moscow correspondent, Fred Weir, whether people thought the easing of restrictions had come too soon. I think there are a lot of people here who do. There is a, a lively debate, as, as I noticed there is almost everywhere, with a lot of pressures being pitted against each other. Uh, medical experts are arguing that the lockdowns should continue. And in fairness to Russia, after some bad mistakes in the beginning, they did do all the right things. They did follow uh, the, the uh, advice of their medical establishment. But um, there, there are economic pressures, as there are everywhere. And there are also political pressures here. Um, there, there's to be the Victory Day parade, which was delayed. Uh, and Putin would really want that on June 24th. And then there's a referendum on constitutional changes on July the 1st. So I think there's some pressure there to get things back to normal. But on the other hand, um, there, there are changing profiles of this pandemic. And apparently, it's not that dangerous now for people who are asymptomatic to go and mix because the World Health Organization put out this statement saying asymptomatic spread is very rare. So maybe there are some arguments, I mean, scientific ones as well, for, for phasing out these lockdowns. Indeed, but uh, Prime Minister Mikhail Mishustin also announced that Russia will begin reopening its border to foreign nationals. Um, that's actually it has some sort of compassionate a aspects to it in, the, in that they'll start with foreigners who need to come to Russia for medical treatment or to take care of their relatives. But other than that, I mean, you know, it, it generally are your um, airports in shutdown? Oh, yes. I, I had to actually drive to the Belarusian border the other day to pick up my son who was coming from Canada because he couldn't get into Russia any other way than by coming through Belarus. And there was no connection between Belarus and Russia. Russia. They've, they've taken that very, very seriously. I mean, the country has been virtually isolated from the world for the past two months. 
Now, when we look at nearly half a million cases, I mean, Russia is a vast country, but what is your population? It is the most populous, populous country in Europe. So the numbers aren't that astounding. Um, it it, it uh, is about 145 million people, which makes it like much, much larger than, say, Germany. Um, and given that the, uh, the sp- I think the spread is far from over, um, because it is such a vast country, it's reaching outlying places because of the transport routes and business patterns uh, later than happened in Moscow. In Moscow, it's clearly plateauing, and we're going down the other side of the curve here, but in some other regions of Russia, indeed, it is increasing. And uh, one hopes the Russian government will, uh, you know, let regions handle it themselves, make their own plan for phasing out these lockdowns. I think that that is happening, and it would be wise. How open has Russia been? I mean, it's difficult to ascertain what's going on in Russia from the outside. Um, They have not done, as I said, a bad job of it after some initial mistakes. Um, And one factor that has to be considered is that their death rate I mean, as opposed to the infection rate, the death rate appears to be quite low compared to Western countries. And I think the simple explanation for that is that they have far smaller populations of the most elderly, vulnerable people. I I heard the other day that in the United States, the median age of someone who dies of coronavirus is above the average life expectancy. But in the United States, the average life expectancy is like 10 years more than in Russia. In Russia, it's 67 for men. So it doesn't make Russia look good, particularly to say that by the time people reach that most vulnerable age, they've already been dead for quite a while. Um, I think there are no political morality tales here. Um, It's just, uh, it's not only Russia, I think in a lot of other third world countries where they lack that large elderly population and those long-term care facilities where it's gone like wildfire. Um, in, in, in Russia, there's very little of that. I think they just they just have fewer deaths. It's the profile of this virus um, and, and not because of governments being bad or good. The name Jane Elliott might not ring a bell. But with the current protests against police brutality in the US, many are reflecting on the work of this white American schoolteacher during the civil rights era back in the 1960s. Ms. Elliott, now 87 years old, is a longtime anti-racism activist. The day after the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. in 1968, she devised the Brown Eyes, Blue Eyes experiment to teach children in her class about prejudice. Her lessons, sadly, are still relevant today. She explains the exercise she did with her third grade class back in the 1960s. I arranged for my little all-white third graders in all-white, all-Christian Riceville, Iowa to walk in the moccasins of a child of color in this country for one day. Blue-eyed people on the bottom the first day, brown-eyed people on the bottom. First thing that was said to me was by a little brown-eyed girl sitting in the front row, and I had blue eyes, which is the reason I put blue-eyed people on the bottom the first day. She looked up at me and she said, how come you're the teacher here if you've got them blue eyes? 
and immediately I knew how it felt to be treated unpleasantly and unfairly on the basis of a physical characteristic over which I had no control. And then one of the kids jumped up and said, well, if she didn't have them blue eyes, she'd be the principal of the superintendent. They're both brown-eyed. Now they weren't. But that kid jumped to my defense in the only way he could. It was just shocking. I watched kids who couldn't read become readers that day. I watched a girl who came into my classroom in February reading at the sixth grade level, unable to read and spell with any kind of accuracy on the day she was on the bottom of that exercise. I thought I knew about expectations. I knew nothing. I pulled down the map above the blackboard that day, and when I did, the thumb sli- the ring slipped off my thumb, and the map went around and around and around the ruler with that awful sound, and I said, well, I've done it again. And once again, little brown-eyed Debbie, sitting in the front row, said, well, what do you expect? You've got blue eyes, haven't you? It took a personal toll on me and my family, yes, absolutely, but in the intervening years, my children have learned that just because people say you're bad doesn't mean you are bad. The second year we did the exercise, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation filmed it. They sent me a copy of that film. I showed it to my parents. My father, who was 59 years old at the time, stood up, took his red handkerchief out of his bib- back pocket of his bib overalls, wiped his eyes, blew his nose, and said, I wish somebody had taught me that when I was nine years old. It sets in pre-birth. I was asked to work with a group of midwives in last Los Angeles last fall. They are all women of color, worked in delivery rooms. And we know that brown and black women don't get the same treatment in delivery rooms that white women do. We want to talk about what racism really looks like, and we want you to help us to find that out. And that's what I did. Racism impacts us with prenatal care, but it never occurred to me that a doctor and nurses would treat black and brown babies differently from the way they treat so-called white babies. These people who are feeling this way aren't ignorant. They are the product of about 238 years of believing, of being taught that white people are superior. We could educate our way out of this. If I could, with 21 little third graders, could do it in two days, could change their opinion of themselves and the people around them and the way they see their world. If one educator could do it for two days, then every educator ought to be re-educated so that they would know what to teach and how to teach instead of teaching the lie. The myth of race is actually the lie of race. There's only one race of human beings on the face of the earth, and that is the human race. Those stories were part of the NewsRap program, which was broadcast on RTHK earlier this evening. Steve Dunthon from our newsroom. We all have to account for our actions especially if you break the law. Different crimes carry different maximum penalties. Taking part in a riot, 10 years. Taking part in an unlawful assembly, five years. Possession of offensive weapon, three years. Assaulting a police officer, two years. Criminal damage, 10 years. So before you act, think. Think of the consequences for you, for your family, for your future. Live across Hong Kong, this is Radio 3. January to December, we'll have moments to Nostalgia with Ray Cadero all the way until 1 a.m.
Miami Sound. Nostalgia. All the way until 1 a.m. And that was La Mer. Only the best coming away from now until 1 o'clock with our kind of relaxing music. I can't stop love. 